giving God control. I was thinking through these songs as we were singing how it fits with the message this morning. Lord, I need you. I don't know about you, but I'm just a young punk compared to some of you. But I'm not 25 anymore either. In fact, I kind of, I don't know if it's a, I don't know, not a morbid thing, but I think, man, I've already lived half my life. And uh, some of you can say, well, I've got more days behind me than I have in front of me. And it'd be true. But, of course, none of us knows the day or the hour we're going to die. None of us have the, the knowledge of when those things are going to happen. But the reality is, the older I get, the more I realize what I do not know, what I cannot control, what I cannot change, and how much I need God. It frustrates me day by day that I shouldn't be doing some of the things that I do. Anybody else find themselves doing that sometimes? I shouldn't respond sometimes the way I respond. I should know better by now. I've been a Christian for 40-some years. Been saved for 40 years. And I think, man, I should, I should have this conquered by now. And yet I don't. I should respond differently. I should act differently. I should speak differently. I should think differently. And I catch myself in that struggle and just the realization of how much I need God every day to get through the day and to respond the way God would have me to respond. Anybody else feel that way sometimes? Goodness. The air I breathe. Your very presence. Do we think of life that way? Do we think of as we are going about our day, the very presence of God with us in everything that we say, do, think, how we live. But the question comes to my mind is, does God have total control in my life? To control, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is to exercise restraint or directing influence over, to have power over one. The first part of the definition has to do with regulation, which carries the idea of an ongoing process. But the latter part of that definition has something to do with rule. And the question we all have to answer is this. Who gets to regulate that ongoing process of our lives? Who gets to regulate and or rule my life? In other words, who gets to control my life as a person. And I wonder often, especially in my own life, if God truly has full control of my life. I like to think that He does. I'd like to remember to a time and a place that I gave my life to God and I said, God, you have total control. I surrender everything to you. But I also know that, like many people, I'm an Indian giver at times. I give you something, but man, I should have kept that. I really want it back. And we know that person is called an Indian giver. You give something and then expect it to come back. But I wonder if we don't do that with God at times. We give Him our life and we say, God, you can have everything, and yet practically we don't give Him everything. We give Him what's convenient. We give Him what is okay. What might be different in my life? in my walk with the Lord, in the church, in our lives specifically, if God had full control? Honestly, what would be different? 
Would I settle for second best? Would I still be okay with good is just good enough? Things are relatively good. I'm okay with that. If I was convinced that God had something better, would I be satisfied with second best? If I were convinced that God had something better. And let me just say, I believe that God does have something better for us. I absolutely 100% believe that God has something more for our church. And that's a crazy thing to think about, but sometimes we get in this idea that, boy, we're just satisfied with the way things are. Yeah, things could improve, things could get a little bit better, but you know, things are, generally speaking, okay. I mean, bills are paid, we're good, right? <coughs> we're getting things done, we're moving forward, we're taking some steps. Woo! Things are good. But I'm not satisfied with that. Because I do believe that God wants something more for every one of us. I believe that. And as I talk to different people in the church, sometimes you get this idea that, well, I kind of like it. It's kind of small. It's kind of cozy. I kind of like it just the way it is. Everybody knows everybody. Kind of rub shoulders with our people that we've known for 20 years or 30 years or 5 years. I'm okay with that. And then there are other people like, nah, you know, I did my turn. I've done my service. It's somebody else's turn. I'm satisfied with where I'm at now in this stage of life. If our best years are behind us, Lord, help us. We ought to want something more from God. We ought to want something bigger and better in our lives that, God, that we want to see God do and accomplish for us. I mean, I'm trying to learn everything I can to help our church take another step. I said six and a half years ago, I wanted a church that was healthy and a church that has impact. Numbers aside, I wonder if that's a good thing to want. A church that's healthy. What makes a church healthy? Well, we have people that are growing in the Lord, first and foremost. People that are taking steps spiritually in their walk with God. People who are obedient to do the things for God that God has expected of them. And we grow in those areas. In fact, my desire for every one of us in this church, in this congregation this morning, is I don't care where you're at, take another step. Just take another step. Wherever you are, everybody's on a different place in the journey with their walk with, the, walk with the Lord. But take another step. Don't get satisfied and settled in where you're at. And then a, be a church that has impact in the world that we live in. If we have no impact, what are we doing? Right? Honestly? Would you agree with that? If our church doesn't have impact, what are we doing? If we're not doing what we're doing to have impact in the world then we might as well just shut the doors. We need to have impact in the world. Christ came to save, seeking to save sinners, right? He didn't came, come to serve, be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. If it was important to Jesus Christ, it ought to be important to us, right? Thank you, all three of you. Um, no, I just believe God wants something more for us. But we won't want something more as long as we are willing to settle for something less. Does that make sense? You won't want anything more or better if we're willing to settle for less than is best. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It's a familiar verse, but I really want us to think about it in this context of, of asking God to do something big in our lives of not settling for second best or second rate 
or good is good enough or things just being okay. I want you to think about it in terms of God wants the best for us. Listen to what God's Word tells us in this verse. It says, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. Do you realize that when this was written, it was during a time of Israel's devastation. Things were not all hunky-dory and great and perfect. There was chaos in the land when this was written. And there was a specific context in which it was written, but practically speaking, he says, I know the plans I have for you. And he says, this is the Lord's declaration. In other words, he says, I know what's best for you. Did you catch what the Lord said? He says, I know the plans. Just let that settle in for a minute. God says, I know the plans for you. Plans for your welfare, your your well-being, not for disaster. Plans for your future and a hope. What are the things that we are most apt to take control of in our lives? What are the things that we are most likely to settle second best in? What are those areas that we are willing to just say, well, things are probably not going to change. Things are probably not going to get better. Things are probably not going to do be any different now than they were you know, six months from now. So I'm just going to be satisfied with where they're at and just kind of hope things don't get worse. Those are the things that we try to control. The things that we say, well, I've given up and that's my control, is that I'm giving up. He says, I have plans for your welfare and your well-being, not for disaster. He says, I did not plan that for you. Plans for your future and hope. He says, I plan to give you a hope, something better to look for. What is hope if we don't have hope? Hope is something that we look forward to, something that we put our confidence in, something that we look forward to. What are the things that we most apt, are most apt to take control of daily? Our welfare, our future, our hope. Add to that our family, our finances, our futures. We try to control those things. And when we feel like we don't have control, we just kind of either let it go to whatever happens, happens, or we just kind of give up, or we just kind of do what we know to do, even though it may not be the best thing. We just kind of do anything but get on our face before God and say, God, if you have the plans, please show them to me. And we settle. Are we interested in knowing these plans? In fact, look at verses 12, 13, and 14, which we don't often see in the same context of verse 11. Verse 12 says, You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. I mean, get that right then and there. God says, If you will call me, I will listen. We have an ear with God. It says, you will seek me and, what's the next word? Find me. When you seek God, he says, I will be found. I mean, think about that. It's not a mystery. It's not a coincidence. It's not chance. It's not like if I call him, he might answer. He said, I will listen. says, so you will seek me and find me when you search for me. How? Bingo. Bingo. Did you just catch that little phrase right there? Say it with me. With all your heart. Say it again. With all your heart. One more time. With all your heart. 
Now let's take a little question survey. You don't have to raise your hand, but in your mind, answer this question because you and God know the answer to this. Are you seeking God with all your heart? Are you seeking God with all your heart? Or have you settled for less than God's best? You've become satisfied with this is just how life is. And you've not seeking God with all your heart. He goes on and says, I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And, get this next phrase, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. What is God saying to the nation of Israel here? He says, I want what's best for you. And if we believe that God doesn't want His best for us, then we don't understand who God is. We don't understand. Sometimes we have this idea that God is a God who's up there in heaven saying, go ahead, go ahead, do it again. And just putting the thumb down on us. When we serve a God who loves us so much that He gave everything for us. And He says, if you will seek Me with all your heart, I will be found. And I will listen. And I know what's best for you. But as long as we're willing to settle for less, we'll not experience more. Are we interested in knowing those plans? Are we seeking with all of our heart? You know, we can try to implement our own plans, but our own plans will fail us. You ever thought about that? How many of you have ever had something that you need to have accomplished and you weren't sure how to do it, but you're just going to trudge away and do something anyway? I've been there, and I found out that without seeking wisdom, I could have saved a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of frustration, but bless God, I had to do it my way. If you would take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm chapter 33. Psalm chapter 33. I love this psalm. We can try to implement our own plans, but our own plans will fail. Psalm 33, beginning with verse 10. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. <laughs> God, I mean, I mean, does not God have a sense of humor? He said, you can try to do it your own way if you want, but I'm just going to tell you it's not going to work. Just, just, just kind of giving you a heads up here. It's not going to work. Verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. God says, what I say will last generation to generation to generation. It says, happy is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The people He has chosen to be His own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from His dwelling place. He alone shapes their hearts and considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be delivered by great strength. The horse is false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. What's he saying here? Everything that a person or a country or a nation could do to build up themselves is going to be what? Futile. He says you might trust in your strength. You might trust in the horse. You might trust in whatever it is that you want to trust in, but it's not going to work. That's amazing. 
So he says, provides no escape by its great power. Verse 18, now the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Those who depend on his faithful love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. So, it kind of goes along with what he's saying there in Jeremiah chapter 29. Those that seek him with our whole heart. When we are committed to looking to God, to trust God, to keep our confidence in God, he will work. But if we try to do it in our own strength, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. So we can try to implement our own plans, but our own plans will be futile. So how does unwillingness to surrender control to God affect us? Well, consider several people here. Uh, If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Right there in the beginning, Genesis, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. 3 verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. Stop right there. Is there anything that happens in our life, and I mean anything, that happens that God doesn't already know about? What? Really? You believe that? Is there anything that God doesn't already... I mean, here God says, I, before you say a word, I know what's happening to you. I know that you as slaves are being oppressed by those that are your taskmasters. I get it. And guess what? Look at verse 9, or verse 8. He says, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. Now think about this. I want you... God wants his best for you as his children, right? Can we agree on that? There we go. Good. So we agree that God wants his best for us as his children. And as they were going through the misery of being whipped and scorned and put to hard labor and task, God says, I know what's going on, and I'm come to deliver you. But he didn't just say deliver them. He says, and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and a bunch of otherites. The bottom line is God said this, I want what's best for you. But God, do you understand that there are some other people already there where you're telling us that we can have? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well aware of it. Got it all under control. Question is, do we want for us what God wants for us? Do we want for us what God wants for us? Or are we willing to settle? And we can go on and talk about the saga of the Israelites and coming out of Pharaoh's bondage all day long. And they were never satisfied. Would to God we would have just stayed in Egypt? And really, was it really so much better there? No, of course not. But they weren't seeking God with all their heart, even though God wanted something better for them. He goes on. Verse 9, The Israelites cry for help us. Come to me. And I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. How does unwillingness to surrender God, control to God affect God's people? And God had to sit there and work with Moses to, to get him to the place where he's willing to surrender. 
How hard does God have to work in our lives to get us willing to surrender? Or how about Joshua chapter 7? If you would turn over there. Joshua judges Ruth. Joshua chapter 7. This is a sad story. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1. Says the Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of the, what was set apart. The Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. We go down to verse uh, 10. He says, the, the Lord then said to Joshua, Stand up, why are you on the ground? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put the things with, with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and, and run from their enemies because they have set, been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from you, you what is set apart. How does an unwillingness to surrender to God affect people? If they would have trusted God, God already said the battle is yours. This should have been a very easy, simple battle. And yet they lost because of the sin of one. This teaches us no one sins in a vacuum. Nobody can say, well, my sin doesn't affect anyone else. It does. The Israelites were unfaithful. Israel has sinned. They didn't trust God. You think God wanted them to lose the battle? You think God couldn't give them the strength and the will and the ability to overcome? He could have. But he says, I'm not going to as long as there's sin. Let's come back to the same phrase. If you seek me with all your heart. They weren't seeking God. They were seeking self-interest. How about Jonah chapter 1? Book of Jonah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. If I can find it. There we go. Little book. Jonah chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. I want you to go. You see the theme in all these things? Moses, go. Um, Achan and the Israelites were to go forward in battle. Uh, Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh. It's a great city, a great, you know, said it took a great city of three days' journey. In other words, it would take three days to walk from one side to the other. Maybe it's a great city like Dallas or Chicago or, you know, some big city if you were to walk across it. Huge area. But Jonah had other plans. Jonah had a whole idea of what it meant to follow God, and it did include going to Nineveh, right? How does the unwillingness to surrender control to God affect people? Go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Ends up in a boat, tossed to and fro, ends up in the belly of a fish. Man, not fun. See, when we don't do what God wants from us, there's a whole litany of effects, and it doesn't just affect us. Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's go there for a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is really interesting here. Begin in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me 
and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Can you imagine just for a moment? He says, I regret. Can you imagine God saying that about you? Wow, those are some strong words. I regret, God says. Because he had a way of doing things, and God had a way of doing things, and they were two different directions. So he goes on here. Verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. And when Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He had deceived himself into believing that he was actually doing what God told him to do. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Samuel replied, Then what is the sound of sheep and the cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and the cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. What was the command? Get rid of everything. Well, I have carried out what God told me to do. Really? Because I think I hear something in the background. Well, the people, they did it. Man, how often have we made excuses as to why we haven't done what God has asked us to do? But notice how an unwillingness to surrender control to God in every aspect affects others. So he begins to blame. It was others who did this. And, and God, I mean, you have to understand, they, they did this for God. God says, that's not what I told them to do, though. The problem is, you are doing what you want to do rather than what I want you to do. So verse 16 says, Stop, exclaimed Saul, Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. Boy, there's some pretty strong language once again. Go until you have annihilated them. And he says, God, I, I, I kind of got a better plan. I want to keep some of the best sheep, some of the best oxen. I mean, after all, we're going to sacrifice them for you, Lord. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and completely destroyed the Amalekites. Well, wait a minute, Saul. You're telling me that you obeyed, but in the next breath you're saying, but I spared King Agag. You were to destroy everything. Annihilate everything. But isn't that like us sometimes to say and to convince ourselves that we're doing what God wants us to do? When we know deep inside we're not. I mean, there is no amount of reasoning that Samuel could have gone with before Saul and convinced him that... Because Saul was convinced that he was doing what God had told him to do. Sincere? Maybe. Sincerely wrong? Absolutely. It was partial obedience, which is really fully disobedience. 
I mean, when God tells you to do something, you do it half, and then say, well, I'm doing everything God asked me to do. No, we're deceiving ourselves. So verse 21, the troops shook, took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel says, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Let, let's put that in the year 2018. God says, I don't care how much money you give me if you're not giving me what I ask you to give. God's not saying, God is saying, I don't care how much time you put in at the church on work day if it's not what I've asked you to give. He says, you don't get to define what it means to obey. He goes, I define that. And partial, obedi partial obedience is disobedience. He's saying, you don't get to put the parameters on what I tell you to do. But if we're not careful, we can deceive ourselves into believing and convincing ourselves that I'm doing what God wants me to do. And when we know in heart, our hearts, that it's not. So how does unwillingness to surrender to God's plans affect people? He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And finally, you see in verse 24, that Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words. And because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. It doesn't matter why we do what we do if it's not what God wants us to do. We have to come to that place that Saul did there for that moment and say, okay, God, I'm sorry. Because an unwillingness to surrender is an ability to affect other people in a harsh way. One more. Second Chronicles, over a few chapters to the right. First, Second Samuel, First Saint Kings, First, Second Chronicles, chapter sixteen. How does unwillingness to surrender control to God affect people? Chapter sixteen, verse twelve says, In the thirty ninth year of his reign, Asa developed a disease in his feet, and in his disease and his disease became increasingly severe. Yet even in his disease, he didn't seek the Lord, but only the physicians. Even in his death, Asa was convinced that I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, question. Can we go back in the earlier part of Asa's life and see where he was walking in complete obedience with God? Yes. Can we go back in earlier parts of his life and say, wow, look what God did because of his faith and obedience? Yes. But for whatever reason, God's word doesn't tell us. But we can observe from the principle here that he took his eyes off God, took his focus off God, began to walk in disobedience, and rather than trusting in God, he put his trust in man. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 17, it says, Cursed is the man who makes the arm of man his flesh. In other words, leans on the, another man, leans on, a, on the flesh and the strength of another person more than on God. Asa would not seek the Lord as God. In despite of everything that was going on, 
What kinds of consequences come when people refuse to relinquish control to God? When we begin to settle for good is good enough. When we begin to settle for things are okay and it's okay. When we begin to give up what's best for what may be good. What are the consequences? What kinds of consequences come when people refuse to relinquish control of their lives to God? I think there are four things, and we'll see this in just a moment in Scripture. Number one, missed or delayed blessings from God. How many times in Scripture could we look, and if we had taken more time, to find that there are just missed or delayed blessings from God because someone had an idea to do it differently or what they thought was better? If we learn nothing else in our life, we have to learn that we can't do it better than what God can do. We can't. I think there's a second consequence, and I think it's prolonged heartache. How many times do we enter into a period of heartache because we don't relinquish control to God? Because we settle for second best. Because we settle for good is good enough, and things are just okay, and I'm okay with that. Heartache that's prolonged. Number three. I think there's a third one that I think is bottom line is it's it's affected a lot of people and I think it's destroyed relationships. Relationships. Marital relationships, relationship between parents and children, relationship between employers and employees, relationships. They're destroyed when we don't put God first. Oftentimes and several of you that are in this congregation, you've met with me for premarital counseling. And the first thing I do the first week is show you the love triangle. God at top and two future spouses on the bottom. How do we get closer to each other? Say it. By you drawing closer to God. You get it? So here's the triangle. God's up here. Person's down here. Person's down here. As each person goes towards God, what happens to the distance between them? It gets shorter and shorter. You want to get closer to the person you're going to marry? You want to get person to the, closer to the person you're in a relationship with is? In? Get closer to God. That's the way it works. And if one person's getting closer to God but the other person isn't, you still have distance. Ain't going to work. Both people have to be going towards God. And even in our relationship where someone's been married for many, many years, if one begins to quit growing, it affects the other one because it creates a distance. You have to be going towards God. Destroyed relationships occur when we don't put God first, when we settle for good is good enough. And I think the fourth one is a travesty, and I think it's just oftentimes ruined testimony for God. Ruined testimonies. Because we didn't put God first, because we were unwilling to control and let give Him control, our testimony is ruined for the Lord. And people see it. And we lose our ability to impact others. If you would take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 106, we'll see this played out. Psalm 106. look at three three or four verses here beginning with verse 24 they despised the pleasant land and did not believe his promise is there a missed or delayed blessings from God there yeah 
They missed an opportunity for God's blessing in their lives. Verse 24. They grumbled in their tents and did not listen to the Lord's voice. Prolonged heartache. So he raised his hand against them with an oath that he would make them fall in the desert. Destroyed relationships, hindered relationships, battered relationships, yeah. In verse 27 it says, And would disperse their descendants among the nations, scattering them throughout the lands. A ruined testimony for God and what he could have done and what their story could have been, what their story might have been. You see, when we don't relinquish control to God in every aspect of our lives, there are missed blessings. There are prolonged heartaches. There are destroyed relationships, ruined testimonies for God. I want to close by looking at just three verses or three passages or four passages real quick. Number one, Psalm 37, 23. Consider what God's word reminds us of. In Psalm 37, 23, says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So God makes this statement. He says, I'm willing, in fact, I'm wanting. And that word, I, the idea behind good man is the idea of mature. A person who is mature, God says, I will guide their steps. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. God says, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you exactly where to go. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what to do. But how can we know what God is telling us? How can we know where God is leading us? You have to get close. said in the beginning, my desire for every one of us, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how long you've attended church, wherever you're at, take another step. If you're not used to reading God's word, then try read it a couple times this week. Man, set a goal. Maybe I just, to to say, God, I'm going to read every day this week might be a little bit ambitious for some of you. Say, God, help me to read two or three days this week. God, Help me to pray a couple days this week. I'm not used to praying. I don't really know how to pray, but God, would you teach me to pray? Help me to pray a couple times this week. If you're not used to praying, make that goal. If, you're, if you've been a Christian longer, then say, God, help me to pray every day. Help me to go to you every day. Take another step wherever you're at. As God says, I'll guide your steps. They're ordered. In fact, I order them. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know the verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what? He shall direct thy path. He says, I'll order your path. But you've got to trust me. Don't do it the way you want to do it. Do it the way I want you to do it, he says. Over in Isaiah, chapter 55. A little bit longer passage here. But Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, says, Come. Everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And you without honey, come, or money, come, buy, eat. And I come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what's good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The promises are sure to David. And he goes on down to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And what did we learn earlier? He says, if you seek me, I will be what? Found. He says, if you call me, I will what? Answer. I'll listen. 
So he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. So what's he telling us here? No matter where you're at, if you come to the realization that you're not where you should be, he's a God of second chances. He's a God that forgives. He's a God that says you can have a do-over. Isn't that awesome? Oh, come on now. Is that not awesome? God is a God of do-overs. I'm thankful for that. Because there's days I need a do-over. I need to start fresh. There's days I just blow it and I say, that was really stupid. Lord, forgive me. Start over. I'm glad he's a God of second chances. He just keeps going. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will, and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. And the mountains and the hills will break into singing before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands instead of the thornbrush and cypress will come up. And instead the briar and myrtle will come up. I will make a name for Yahweh as an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. God says, I want what's best for you. That's why I allow second chances. That's why I forgive. And First John reminds us that process, if we are willing to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One last verse. Familiar verse. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. You see, oftentimes when we're unwilling to relinquish control to God, it's because we're seeking something other than God. Something that we think will satisfy. Something that we think will make us happy. Something that we think that will give us joy. But he says, there's a priority involved. He says, but seek thirdly on your list the kingdom of God, right? No. But seek, after you're satisfied with the other things, secondly, the things of God. No. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If we would be consumed with that, I'm absolutely 100% convinced that everything else will fall into its rightful order. Because our focus won't be over here or over here or on that or on this. It'll be on, God, what do you have for me this day so that that will help me become more righteous and obedient in my walk with you? That's what we ought to be seeking. And can I just say this? Don't settle for second best. Don't settle for good is good enough. Don't be okay with just things being okay. Because you have to believe that God wants the best for you as his child. Amen? But if we're not willing to seek it with all of our heart and to know God and his plans 
And to be in his word and pray, we're not going to know what those things are. I believe that God wants something more for us. I'm not satisfied with where we're at. I'm not. I want something more. I want, I want all that God has. And I told somebody last night, I said, God can fill in the what with whatever he wants. I'm not saying, God, I want something more, and here's my list. I just want to see his hand move. I want to see our church be healthy, and I want to see our church have impact in the world that we live in. God can control the number. I'd be selfish in saying that, or I'd be lying to say I don't want it to grow. I want growth. Man, every, all time, every, every time God puts me in contact with a ministry that is just worthwhile, I want to support it. I think, ah, can't do that. Can't do anything right now. Maybe later. Maybe next year. Maybe a couple years from now. As soon as we get a few more people and the income's a little bit better, there's a selfish side of me that says, "Man, I wish I could support everybody." You all know that. I wish I could just support a ton of people. But as long as we're willing to settle for second best, and good is good enough, and okay is just okay. And just give God partial obedience, which is full disobedience. Things aren't going to change. And it starts with you and I as individuals. But we have to know that our unwillingness to surrender all affects those around us. Right? You see that in all those examples. God wants something better. But until we want what God wants for us, things aren't going to change. As long as we're willing to settle for less, we won't want more. That's a problem. And that's something that you and I have to deal with before God. Because he says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you call to me, I will answer. If, what? You do it with all your heart. And so the question you and I have to answer is, am I seeking God with all my heart? Or am I seeking them when it's convenient? Or when I have more time in one part of the day than another? Or fill in the blank. We all know where we're at. You and God know where you're at. Let's pray.